0: we are going to be continuing, uh, looking at the theme of invitations, excuses, and celebration. And so would you bow with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you, Lord, for your Son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world, came to teach us how to live, came to teach us how to love, and ultimately came to show us what love looks like by dying on the cross in our place, forgiving our sins so that we could be made right with you, that we could receive your invitation to become your child, to receive the gift of salvation, and to have a place around your table. And so, Father, this morning as we are again reminded of this incredible truth, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, Father, add your power to these words, would you by your Your grace, Lord, speak again to our hearts a message that we may have heard many times before, but it's never really sunk in. It's stayed at the, the surface level, and we've heard it at a surface level, but we've never received it at that heart level where we've taken this truth and engaged with it in a very personal way in our lives. And there's many profound truths in Scripture, Lord, that we've heard over and over again, and we understand at a surface level, but until we put them into practice, we will never truly understand them at that deeper level, that heart level. And so, Father, I pray that today you would knock away that barrier that would stop this truth from going deeper than just the surface level, Father. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, do that powerful work that only you can, that this would sink into our lives so deeply, Father, that we couldn't help but live it out in our everyday lives. And so we ask for this power this morning, Lord. I ask for this as your servant, that you would give me boldness, Lord, to speak your word as you would have me to. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now in the Old Testament, it was not uncommon for a king to receive direction from God through a vision or through a dream. And so what would sometimes happen is a king would become maybe confused in what was happening. His enemies were having victory over him. And so he was desperately seeking for direction from God. And so he would hope to have a dream from God that would tell him what to do. And so apparently, what would sometimes happen is a king could become so desperate to have a dream or a vision from God that he would, he would try to induce um, extra slumber so that he could have more dreams. And if that wasn't happening or if that wasn't working... He would even go and sleep in the temple, hoping that perhaps by being in that holy place, that he would receive a vision from God much more clearly. And so as legend would have it, that began the age-old tradition of sleeping in church. (laughs) So, in case you were wondering where that one came from. Now, if we're all being perfectly honest this morning, and I include myself in this, We have all nodded off in church a time or two, haven't we? Come on, be honest. I'm going to put my hand up. I'm not going to look. Who else is putting up their hands? Oh, no one. Come on. Do do you want me to start naming names? Because I see everything from up here. You know, as a pastor, I find it quite humorous the excuses I sometimes get when people think that I've caught them nodding off in church. And I'll hear all sorts of excuses, and the one that I like the most is when they usually start off with something like, "It's, it's not that you were boring or anything, it's just that I was up really late last night, you know. Well, I could make the excuse that I'm never boring, and, well, I've been preaching long enough to admit that I am capable of being boring from time to time. Despite my best efforts, I'm willing to admit that I am capable of being boring. As one preacher once put it, if all the people who have gone to sleep during my sermons were put end to end, they would be much more comfortable. (laughs) So hopefully this morning, I won't be putting anyone to sleep, but I want to continue to talk with you just a little bit more about invitations, excuses, and feasting. And I want you to turn with me now to Luke chapter 14, and there we're going to look at the story that Reuben read for us earlier in the service. Luke chapter 14, and there we're going to begin at verse 1. Now, we already read the story, so we're familiar with the context. The narrative begins with Jesus responding to an invitation to eat a meal at a prominent Pharisee's house. Now, the little details in Scripture are very important. When it says a prominent Pharisee's house, what that is saying in those two little words, prominent Pharisee means... He's not just your, your rookie in the Pharisees' ranks. He's prominent. He is near the top of the heap. So he's going to be one of the top three to five guys most likely within the whole Pharisee circle, which means many things that we can extrapolate from that little statement. It means he's incredibly wealthy. That means that his house is not just a little shanty or a little shack. It means he's got a a good house. He's got a nice pad. And that means that when he throws a party, when he has a supper and invites people, it's not just three or four or six or seven people. We're talking 20, 30, upwards of 50 people at a time that he would be capable of hosting and hosting in an extravagant manner, a lavish feast. There would be nothing lacking at being invited to a meal of a prominent Pharisee. So now we see Jesus has received this invitation to go to the prominent Pharisee's house. And then as we go through the narrative, we see that it continues with Jesus giving three separate teachings on invitations. First, we see in verses 7 to 11 that he teaches about receiving an invitation with humility. Then in verses 12 to 14, we see that he teaches about giving an invitation with grace and generosity, not looking to have it repaid. And then in verses 16 to 24, Jesus gives the most comprehensive teaching demonstrating God's open invitation to come and feast around his table and the various ways that people respond to that invitation, both positively and negatively. So let's pick up the story in verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. And then he asked them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath, do you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Now, there's a few little details in there that I want to draw out for your attention. The first thing we see is that this prominent Pharisee's invitation to Jesus had ulterior motives. The ulterior motives being that they were watching him carefully for a slip-up. They wanted to set him up to fail. They were hoping that in something he would say or do, they could catch him and have reason to, to accuse him, whether falsely or, or otherwise, to hopefully have him diminished in some way in the eyes of the common people. And so we see that this invitation was not being done out of a gracious attitude or a, a generous spirit. Instead, it had ulterior motives. But then we see the next thing, Jesus knows their hearts, he knows their ulterior motives, and another important detail in the story is that this is happening on the Sabbath. Now, when we hear the Sabbath, we typically think of Sunday. However, in the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath is Saturday, that is the seventh day of the week. And so here on the Sabbath, one of the very, uh, very stern and strict laws that the Pharisees had is that of not doing any work on the sabbath whatsoever you would not prepare a meal on the sabbath so this feast that they're having on the sabbath day was not prepared that day it was prepared the previous day and so there's a large amount of work and logistics that goes into this meal and to make sure that it was all prepared the day previous and so there was even rules about how many steps you could take on the sabbath Like, I I forget what the exact number is, but there was a, a required amount of steps that you could take, and if you went beyond that, that was too much work, and you could get into trouble. And so one of the things that they were very stern and strict about was you could do no healing on the Sabbath because that was considered work. And so here, Jesus on the Sabbath comes to a prominent Pharisee's house. He knows he's being carefully watched. He knows the motives of their hearts. And what does he do? At the gate of this guy's house is a man sick with dropsy. Now, dropsy is not a term that we're overly familiar with. However, uh, to give you a little bit of background on it, it was uh, a broad term that was used for a medical condition that was mostly characterized by the symptoms that it had because in those times they didn't have exact diagnoses of what these ailments were. And so dropsy was something that was characterized by Um, an excess of of liquid under the skin and in the joints, and so you would start to swell and to puff up, and your neck and your face would be swollen and puffy, your joints would be all swollen and puffy, and moving, and your, your ability to get around was extremely painful, and you would look extremely disfigured from all this bloating and puffing from having this dropsy. And so Jesus, knowing the motives of their hearts, he says to this man, suffering with dropsy, after asking the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, it says he forcefully takes hold of the man. He forcefully takes hold of him. He he takes him by the arms or by the shoulders, and here he's sitting there. We don't know the motives of this man's heart, of why he's sitting there, but we can probably be safe in assuming that he is there because he hopes He has heard of Jesus' miracles and ability to heal. He has a hope in his heart that he will be healed that day. That's why he's sitting by that doorway as Jesus passes by. Everyone else is ignoring this man. But Jesus singles this man out. He takes hold of him forcefully. And and lifting him, picking him up, he stands him upright. And you know what? In that moment, in that instant, he is healed. Completely healed, not just partially not just halfway, not just the swelling's gone down a little bit. It is noticeable to everyone who's there. This man was sick, and now he's standing there, whole, healed, just like that. And Jesus just does this to the man. You can only imagine the look in his eyes, the wonder in his heart. And Jesus just says, Get out of here, go. And he sends him on his way. Talk about making an entrance, right? Here's Jesus. Coming into a place, he knows he's being carefully watched. He knows they're looking for a slip-up for him to do work on the Sabbath. And then right in front of their eyes, he heals someone on the Sabbath. And I love the next line, and they said nothing. They're just, hmm. How do we respond to something like this? Because we cannot deny the miracle. They couldn't deny what they had just seen. And so they had no response. It's incredible when we think about what Jesus did here. Now, as we continue on in this story, we see Jesus continuing to to stick the needle into these Pharisees, provoking them on the very things that they are hung up on. Now, I want to go back to the idea of being invited to this feast. We're going to hold on to that other theme for just a moment. Now, Jesus going to a prominent Pharisee's house is what we would expect, right? They're the religious elite. They're the experts in the law. Jesus, a rabbi, going to the who's who for dinner is what we would expect, right? Uh, A modern-day equivalent of Jesus going to this prominent Pharisee's house would be like if Franklin Graham, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, or Francis Chan, or pick-your-big-name Christian preacher was to come through Clarny, and we were to host him as a ministerial, and, and they would have dinner with all the pastors in town. That's what you'd expect, right? And this is kind of the equivalent with Jesus going to a prominent Pharisee's house. But Jesus also ate with and associated with those who we wouldn't expect. People like tax collectors. We remember the story of Zacchaeus, a notorious cheat, a hated tax collector. And when he's up in the tree, Jesus says, Come down, Zacchaeus, because I'm going to eat at your house today. Can you imagine the reaction from the crowd? Jesus going and eating at a tax collector's house. We also saw him associate with other outcasts, people like the Samaritan woman at the well, even prostitutes like the woman brought to him who had been caught in the very act of adultery. In fact, Jesus spent so much time around these types of people, the sort of people you wouldn't expect, that his enemies even called him a drunk and a glutton, a friend of sinners and tax collectors. That was one of their favorite names for him. Friend of sinners, tax collectors. Not the sort of people that a respectable person would spend time with. Certainly not a rabbi. Certainly not the type of people that you would want to have come into your house. That you would want to invite to dinner. And knowing this, in verses 12 to 14, Jesus goes on to directly challenge his host. And he says that when you're inviting people to dinner, don't invite just your friends... Don't invite just your relatives or your rich neighbors who are capable of returning the favor, but instead, invite those people that you wouldn't expect. The ones who smell, the ones who are sick, the ones who don't have nice clothes, the ones who have been sleeping in the street because they're so poor, they don't even have a house to call home. Invite those people, because when you invite them, they don't have the ability to repay the favor. No, and then when you do that, you will have reward waiting for you in heaven. And guess who was sitting around this Pharisee's dinner table when Jesus said those words? Guess who was sitting there? Yeah, you got it. His relatives, right? His wealthy friends, the, the who's who of the city were sitting around that table. There was not a poor person in sight. There was not a sinner in sight by their standards. It was all the who's who were sitting around his table. And to his host, Jesus says, what you've done here is wrong. You've invited all the wrong people. Here's who you should have invited. The guy who I healed outside of the gate, that's who you should have invited to this dinner table. Talk about sticking it to the Pharisees one more time. And as a side note, I want to just throw this out there. When you are looking to invite someone to come with you to church, maybe next Sunday, back to church Sunday, I'm going to plug it throughout the sermon. When you're looking to invite people, who are you looking to invite? Only people who fit your criteria? Only people who look like you, talk like you, maybe hit that echelon that you think is acceptable, that standard, whatever your standard is? Or are you looking to invite the least of these? The poor, the outcast, the people who don't look like they fit within a church? That's who Jesus says we should be inviting. These aren't my words, these are his words. Who are we inviting? Who are we looking at? Jesus is sticking it to the Pharisees, and in doing so, he's sticking it to us. You know, this is a blunt teaching. There's no way to soften these words. But a man around the table tries to do that when he hears the challenge in Jesus' words to the host. He tries to soften them by piously saying, verse 15, take a look at this. He says, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Very pious words. You know, you can just hear it, right? This guy... This guy is the guy who stands up in the temple and reads the the law of Moses, reads the Torah. He's used to saying things that sound religious. Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. As though to just smooth over what Jesus has just said. And Jesus isn't having any of it. In response to this man's statement, he tells the parable of the great banquet. Verses 16 to 20. Let's take a quick look at that again so it's fresh in our minds. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servants came back and reported this to his master. Now, let's stop right there. Excuses, excuses, and more excuses. They're they're, they're funny things, aren't they? Excuses, we all use them. We use them almost every single day, whether we realize it or not. We use them for all sorts of things, from the classic, my dog ate my homework, right? We've all heard that one before. Or the... I wasn't meaning to speed, officer. You see, I I was just coming down the hill and there's this big tailwind and my speedometer's a little off. And did I mention I'm going to church? Right? (laughs) Am I the only one who's used that one before? (laughs) Excuses, right? We all use them. And in this parable, the people who are invited give all sorts of excuses as to why they can't attend the banquet. And the same is true today people will make all kinds of excuses as to why they are too busy for God. And you will begin to hear some of those excuses as soon as you start inviting people to church. I guarantee you of that. But you know what? That is perfectly okay. That is fine. If you hear excuses as to why someone's too busy to join you in church on Sunday, that's okay. Because it's not on you to convince the people to come. It's not on you to twist their arm and force them to to come, just like it wasn't on the servants to force the people to come to their master's banquet. No, their job was simple. Go out and extend the invitation. If they come or don't come, it's not on you, it's on them. Their excuses are not on you, it's on them. Are Are we crystal clear on this? I hope we are. It's not your job to convince people to come here. It's your job to simply extend an open invitation. You see, we shouldn't be surprised when people make excuses. In my experience, when I've been befriending someone, trying to share with them the truth about God's word, first through through a friendship, showing them love, showing them what Christian compassion looks like, then from there praying for opportunities to begin speaking that word and eventually coming to an opportunity to even extend an invitation for them to come to church, in my experience, it usually takes two, three, four, seven invitations before they're first going to come through the doors of this church. It it often takes perseverance and persistence. And between that first invitation and the times where they actually come, you're going to hear a whole gamut of excuses, including, my alarm clock didn't go off. Right, It's really that simple. So don't be surprised when you hear excuses. Because you see, as followers of Jesus Christ, if you have already made that decision to follow him, we make excuses all the time too. We make excuses about why our Bible reading is sporadic or non-existent. We make excuses about why we haven't been to church in a while. Why we've been losing our temper. Why we can't put money in the offering plate. Why we just can't forgive so-and-so These are all things that we know that Jesus wants us to do, commands us to do, but maybe aren't doing a very good job of. And so we make excuses. But one of the top things that we as Christians make excuses about, one of the things in my experience that I've made the most excuses about is this we make excuses about why we don't personally share our faith in Jesus with others. Isn't that true? Am I way off base? Am I the only one who's made excuses about why I haven't done it more often or at all? Am I the only one? I don't think I am. We all make excuses about this because we know, we know deep down that salvation comes in no one other than Jesus Christ and that without Him as our personal Savior, I am lost. I am lost without hope in this world without Jesus Christ in my life. I am persuaded of that. I am convinced of that. It's why I'm up here this morning. But if I am persuaded and convinced that salvation can come in no other person than in Jesus Christ, and I withhold Him, I withhold an invitation to get to know Him from someone else, what am I saying about the value of that other person? What kind of worth am I assigning to someone if I know that their only hope of salvation rests in knowing Jesus Christ, but I won't talk to them about him? What am I saying? We make excuses about it all the time, but I want to get right to the heart of the matter. If we know that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ, and we know that for anyone in this entire world, unless they are invited to know Jesus in a personal way, they are lost, not just for today but for eternity and we withhold that from him from him or her then we as servants of God are responsible for withholding the invitation we are not responsible if they receive the invitation but we will stand accountable before God for withholding an invitation into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and so we need to stop making excuses about why we're not doing it more often or making that a priority in our lives, and we need to start saying, what can I do right now today to stop making excuses and to get engaged in passing along the invitation? We need to stop saying things like, I'm too busy. I'm not gifted at that. Isn't that the preacher's job? I'm doing better than most people. Or, I did it once back in 1994, so I'm good now. You know, I got it off my bucket list. You know, That is not what we're talking about here this morning. Let's take another look at the parable. The man throwing the great banquet represents God the Father. The people receiving the invitation represent all those who have not yet put their faith in him. And the servants tasked with extending the invitation represent all those who have already put their faith in him and are now given the assignment to go out and share the good news that there is still more room around their master's table. So come join us. And like I said earlier, the servant's job is not to make the people come, it's to simply extend the invitation until the table is full. Now, it's hard to believe that five years have passed since I last preached on this exact text, and that five years have passed since we unveiled the fourth part of our church's mission statement, which is growing God's family. And in those five years, I've thought often about the object lesson that I did That Sunday for that sermon. And I'm sure some of you are going to remember it. But I think it's time that we as a church went through the object lesson again so that we can really, in a crystal clear way, see exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says there is more room around the Master's table. Now, I am going to extend an invitation. See, up here I have a, a feast, if you will. Everyone can see what those are. If you can't in the back, these are sour soothers. They are delicious, and uh, they're packed with sugar. They are uh, totally not good for your teeth, but that doesn't matter because they taste amazing. And I'm just going to throw those sour soothers on the table here, and I'm probably going to have one. Hold on a second. Yeah, they're good. They're good. Trust me. Now, I'm going to extend an invitation that... If you would like to have a sour soother, this is an open table. I'm going to give the invitation that if you would like to come to the front, it's open, free for all. There's chairs around the table. I would like to invite you to personally come to the front. I'm going to name someone. Brittany, I'm going to get you to come right up to the front. It's an open invitation. You can say no if you want, but you can come up too if you want. Great, she's coming. Have a seat at the table. Help yourself to some sour soothers. Oh, man. I'm going to have to work on this for a while. Come <laughs> on, bring me some water. How is that? Is it delicious? Yeah. Is, this, is this table a pretty good place to be? Yeah. You weren't expecting to be up here when you came to church this morning, were you? But you're here now. Good. You know what? We've got two more, we've got two more chairs around this table. How, do you, how would you like to go out and invite someone else to come up and join us at our little Sour Soother Feast here? Yeah? Go for it. Whoever you want to invite, go out and invite someone. Rhonda, would you like to come sit? Oh, there we go. You didn't even need to go down there. She just calls her, come on down. You're the next contestant? No. All right. This is is going really well here. Um, We're already three-quarters of the way to a full table here. Rhonda, you you can take a few extra for the kids when you head back there. You can... (laughs) The growing-up kids, too. I think Dennis is eyeing these up right now. You know what, Rhonda? It's great that you joined us. There's still another place at the table. Would you like to invite someone else to come on up to the, to the front here? Oh, perfect. Ask and you shall receive. I would invite Lisa Harms. Lisa Harms. Oh, perfect. Oh, here comes Lisa. Look at that. No one's even saying no. This is great. See how easy it is? You just ask, people come, sour soothers are plentiful, and you know what? This bag is bursting at the seams. There's so many in here. There you go, Lisa. All right, and now what I want you actually to do is take these, Brittany. And you can go and you can distribute those as you go along your way. Share the good news. Let's give them a round of applause, everyone. Thank you. Are we getting the picture? There's still more room around the master's table. And now, the, the easy thing to do is once you've been invited to come up and have a place around the table is it's all there in front of you and you're enjoying the feast. You're you're feasting on God's grace. His love being a part of the family is a good thing. And we love being around the master's table. We love being a child of God. But being a child of God, as great as it is, isn't something you're supposed to keep to yourself because there is always more room around the table. And God says the invitation is still open. And so when we come around the table, he then says to us, Now go back out and bring others to join me around my table because there is more provisions for everyone. I hope we're getting the picture of how this works. Now, many of us will make excuses, as I said. And we've made excuses perhaps about why we wouldn't have come to the front, you know? Some of you who weren't invited, I'm too old, I'm too young, I don't like being in front of people, I'm uncomfortable. There's all sorts of different excuses that we give. But when others accepted the invitation and the number of people feasting around the table grew, did you notice what was beginning to happen at the front? They were becoming more comfortable. Mass begins to grow, it begins to take on momentum. And you would have been more likely to come to the front if there was more people at the front than if you were the first one. That's why I asked Brittany, because I knew she had the courage to come to the front of the first one. But that's how it works. You know, the more something grows, the more attractive it becomes. And so it is with the body of God, the body of Christ. As we gain momentum, as people see, you know what? It's not so scary. Brittany came to the front, and she didn't fall down dead. In fact, it was a good place to be. She was enjoying the provisions on the table. And so too, others were willing to come to the front, and it began to grow from there. I'm sure if we'd continue that exercise, we could have got every last one of you packed into the front of this church if we'd really wanted to spend the time to do it. I'm pretty sure we could have got there. There might have been a few holdouts, but then you would have felt like the oddball, right, on the other side of the equation. It's funny how these things work. But this is how God's family grows. This is how the message of the gospel gets spread. Yes, we look at the Billy Grahams of the world and we think of these massive evangelistic crusades and outreaches, but you know what? They really happen in the one-to-one friendships every day that are formed. They happen in the one-to-one conversations. They happen in the one-to-one, hey, you go to church every Sunday, right? Where do you go? Oh, let me tell you about it. I go down to Bay Avenue. It's my church. I love going there every Sunday. You could join me. You know, that is where... The real connections happen where the rubber hits the road. That's how God's family grows. And you know what? The invitation is still open. God is looking to adopt more children into his family. I pray and hope that you've already received that adoption as a son or daughter of the king. But the invitation is still open. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, the Apostle Paul explains this incredible truth. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies within our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share with his sufferings, in order that we too may share in his glory. You see, every single day, the Heavenly Father's family is growing because he is continually adopting new sons, new daughters to come and join him around his banquet table, not as guests, not as visitors, but as permanent members of his family. And let me just pause right here and say, if you have not yet been adopted into the Heavenly Father's family, if you are not yet a child of God, you can change that right now this morning. It's very simple. The invitation is open. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and gentle of spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. If you need to find rest for your soul as a child of God, it's very simple. Go to Jesus. Jesus has everything you need, everything you're looking for, because he loves you. He's shown the extent of that love by dying on the cross in your place. Because we are all sinners, our sin deserves death. He's died for that sin. He's taken it upon himself so that we don't have to pay the penalty for it ever again. And so now, all we have to do is receive that gift of forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus, just like we saw in the video this morning. It's that simple. I receive you into my life. I trust you as my Savior. Forgive me for my sins. Give me the gift of the Holy Spirit, and I will live my life following you. It's as simple as that. You can receive that open invitation today. John chapter 3, verse 1 says that once we receive this, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Perfect. There's still more, so go out into the neighborhoods and invite others at their Sour Soothers at the Clarny Mennonite Church next Sunday. We'll get them in by coercion. No, I'm not, we're not going to do that. But it's a good place to be, isn't it? It's a good place to be when you're a part of the family of God. You know what? There's nothing in my life that I cherish more than being a part of the family of God. There is nothing greater than saying to be able to stand before you and say, I'm a child of the King. I would not trade that for anything. And so, may we embrace our identity in Christ as a child of God. May we embrace it fully, holding nothing back, and let's start living it out. Let's stop making excuses. And let's live out this faith, live out this open invitation that Jesus has given us. Because the command is plain. If you've missed the point this morning, well, I'm sorry, I I don't know how to make it more plain to you, but Jesus has given us this job as his servants, as his children, to go out and live out the invitation, live out the open invitation that salvation is in Jesus Christ. Do you want to meet him? And that can happen in so many different ways, and it can begin with something as simple as saying, hey, do you want to join me in church next Sunday? Don't just say, hey, come to church next Sunday. Join me at church next Sunday. You can sit with me. I'll save you a spot. I want you to look around at those pews that are open around you. There's there's quite a few up front here. There's quite a few in the side here. Don't look at those as a negative. Look at those as a positive. I've said this countless times, and I still believe it. Those are open opportunities. There is more room around this particular church table, isn't there? Is there more room? Amen to that. There is more room. So let's fill this place up. Because that is God's will. His desire is that his family grow. We don't need to wonder about that. His desire, his will, is that none should perish, but that everyone should come to salvation through Jesus Christ. Today can be that day of salvation. And it can be as simple as an open invitation. And so, will we walk in obedience or not? That's our final challenge today. Will we leave here? and leave it at the surface level like we have many times before, like I have many times before, or will we let it sink into our souls and say, you know what, there's someone God's laying on my heart that I'm going to talk to this week. There's someone that God's laying on my heart that I'm going to go and personally invite to join me in church next Sunday, and I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to save a spot for you. You can come sit with me. I want you to come check it out. You know, I saw a sign in Brandon yesterday. This church had this flashing sign, this billboard up. And I just saw it quickly, and I had to laugh because it said this. Why don't you try out Jesus for just a day? Satan will always take you back. And I was like, Leanne, did did that sign say what I thought it said? And she said, yeah, I think it did. (laughs) <laughs> it just kind of made me laugh, but I was like, how much more succinct couldn't it be than that? You know, what are, what are we so afraid of? Why are we so intimidated? Why are we so timid to, to shrink back when you know what? There is nothing better than knowing Jesus. And there is nothing more sad than a life lived without Him. And there's nothing more tragic than a life ending without Jesus in that soul and in that heart, to head into eternity without Christ. And so this is our mandate. We must live as Jesus did. We must walk as Jesus did. We must love the people that Jesus loved. That is our calling. Talk the talk, but walk the walk. Walk as Jesus did. I I want you to look around you this morning and look at all the great faces of all the people around here. Okay, I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, you're a celebrity. Alright? Okay, Lisa's going to do it first, because Scott already feels like one. Okay, come on, come on, everyone. I want you to turn. Come on, let's, let's play along here. You're a celebrity. Malvina doesn't have any. Okay, perfect. Malvina, you're a celebrity. Because what Lisa shared with us last week is so true. Celebrity is just a term, right? It's, it's for people that we think of in glitz and glamour in Hollywood. But you know what? In the family of God, we should make each other feel like celebrities because the least of these are the most valued here. Isn't that the truth? The least of these are celebrities in God's family. And so when we come here, I hope that you feel like a celebrity, that even if everywhere else you feel insignificant, unloved, unworthy, uncared for, when you come here, you know you are loved you know you are valued, and you know you belong, because you belong to the Father. And he's our king. He's our Lord. And let's follow him as we go out this week. Who's God laying on your heart to invite? Maybe there's more than one. I want to challenge you this week. Don't just put it on the back burner. You've got invitations in your hand. There's a back table when you leave here. Saturday morning, we're going to go out and invite the neighborhood just around the church here to make sure that everyone is aware of what's happening, that this is an open place, the invitation is clear. Come and hear about Jesus, because he's who we love to talk about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We love you for everything you've done for us. We love you because you first loved us, and you loved us so greatly, so abundantly, so extravagantly that we are overcome by this love, we are so changed by this love that we can't help but give it back to you. To return it to you and to give everything that we have in our lives to you, including, Lord, our thoughts, our actions, our every word that we speak on our tongues, Lord, we give them back to you. As an offering of praise, as an offering of worship, Lord, we give everything that we have to you. And this week, Lord, we give our time to you. And we pray, Father, that as we give our time to you, that we would take that extra time to go out of our way, to invite that one or two people that you've laid in our hearts to say, hey, why don't you join me in church next Sunday? And Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would already go before us, already anoint those conversations, Father, that even if they don't respond, even if they make an excuse that by your Holy Spirit you would use that conversation to plant a seed that will grow up into something that will last for eternity. And so we pray for that anointing for this week, Father, and each one who's here, may you add your special blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.